Okay, so I've told you about it before, but let me remind you about Pass Test. How about this Christmas, you go and treat yourself to a great subscription to a world of questions for the MRCS, the MRCP, medical school finals that are really going to help you pass those exams and reduce the stress next year. You can find the 15% discount code in the show notes. So go and have a Merry Christmas. Make sure you have a little bit of a break too from me. Welcome to MRCS on the Move. Bowels, bones and backseat vibers. I'm your host, Naomi, but this is the podcast where you do the talking. Jingle balls, jingle balls, jingle balls, rock. <laughs> and welcome everybody to the Christmas episode of Bows, Bones and Backseat Vibers. You've just missed a um, very amusing conversation of uh, as m- myself and our special guest today trying to come up with Christmas puns for Christmas songs. What am I talking about? Christmas puns. Urology puns for Christmas songs. And uh, we've been horrendously unsuccessful with uh, Jingle Balls being one, um, cocking around the Christmas tree. Not even sure I can say that. Um, And something about Rudolph's Red Balls. I'm not sure (laughs) whether that went anywhere. (laughs) It made sense when we said it. Did you any others that you remember, Cynthia? Um... I don't even remember anymore. They were all horrendous, to be fair. <laughs> this is true. So we'd like to invite anyone to uh, message in with any improvement on our urology Christmas puns, if you uh, if you'd like to. But um, let me not hesitate any more and introduce you to our uh, Christmas episode, which we've titled the Twistmas Baubles, <laughs> which is better than any of the song puns we came up with. Um, so I'm very happy to invite on the show today Miss Nagu Leswaran, who or Sinthu to me, um, who is a fellow urology registrar um, working in Sheffield. Um, so formally, you've already uh, <laughs> impeted somewhat, but um, welcome to the podcast, Sinthu. Thank you very much. I'm very happy to be here. Yeah, it's fabulous to have you. Sinthu is sitting with a wonderfully sparkly oh you're holding up the glass of wine I was talking about the tree but oh. <laughs> yes but um we have sacrificed our Friday evenings to record this episode so we've both sat with a, a glass and probably bottle of wine yes, aren't we correct. so uh, to get us through this episode um but yeah so as the title sort of implies we're going to talk about testicles however it's slightly misleading because we are not actually going to touch on twisted testicles um as I've done that in a previous episode. Um, So we're going to talk about other causes of acute testicular pain um, and swelling that uh, you need to know about for the MRCS. So um, shall we crack on? Sounds good to me. And always I'll I'll give you the disclaimer of uh, the noisy dog in the background. Darcy is featuring again um, (laughs) today. I've tried to settle her with choose but it's not working (laughs) um so what we will talk about is a bit of how we assess testicles um Cynthia does this all the time (laughs) so (laughs) as we both do Um, so uh, 
we're going to talk about that and then we're going to go on to as some of your differential diagnosis with the swollen testicle. So to start with, patient presents with a painful right testicle. How are you going to assess them? As with any presentation, you start with a history and then follow on with an examination. So, as I'm sure most people are aware, with testicular presentations, the history and examination is quite important um, because there are very limited investigations we can do. So, any patient with a swollen scrotum, you always want to ask the duration of the swelling, whether there's any associated pain, which side it's affecting any red flag symptoms, of course, which I know you've covered testicular tumours in another mm, episode, yeah. and generally ask about their wellness. Do they have any fevers? Do they have any uh, weight loss? Um, so as with any patient, you start with a general examination. So do they look unwell? Um, do they look a bit cachectic? Do they look like they're visibly in pain? Um, you know, do they look quite fit and well otherwise? Then going on to a specific examination, so always do a full abdominal examination when assessing someone's scrotum, just to make sure there's no abdominal pathology as well. Um, and then just focusing on the scrotum, look at where the swelling is, how big the swelling is, what the shape is. So, you know, is it a continuous swelling around the testicle? Is it a separate swelling, not spelling, um, <laughs> separate from the testicle? Uh, does it feel smooth? Does it feel hard? All of those kind of things are very important. Um, another thing that's quite useful is uh, whether it's tender or not. So <clears throat> there's a few things that are painful and non-painful swellings. Looking at overlying skin changes as well. So any erythema over the scrotal skin. Um, you know, does it look like there's a bit of oozing or discharge coming from the skin, which could suggest an abscess? There's two signs that we tend to look for in testicular examination. Um, yeah. We... Oh, don't don't tell them. We're going to ask. So, okay. what is the friend's sign? Tell us, Cynthia. Right. So friend's sign if so that's the one you were talking about <laughs> was the one i was talking yeah. about yes so a friend sign although it's not diagnostic it is very helpful so a positive sign is when the pain in the testicle or scrotum is relieved by elevating the testicles now a positive sign um, essentially meaning that the pain is relieved is more indicative of epididymal orchitis whereas a negative sign Although textbooks will say is leading more towards a torsion, it essentially just means it's probably not going to be infection. But as with anything, take it into consideration with the rest of the examination as well. Mm. Um, and the second one, are you talking about your chromosteric reflex by any chance? Yeah, so that's obviously more important for a testicular torsion, but in things like a um epididymal orchitis it can be exaggerated mm. so to speak but again that's quite difficult to ascertain if you've never assessed the same person's chromosome reflex before yeah which most of us haven't um, <laughs> they, um 
I think it's quite sensitive, isn't it, your chromostatic reflex, in terms of for torsion, if it's negative. Yeah. Um, mm. So actually, if you do have a truly negative chromostatic reflex, it's actually a yeah. really reliable sign. I think yeah. it's like it's, eight. Can you remember the number? Oh, you're testing me now. I don't remember the number. But it is, especially when it's present on the other side. Yeah. And absent on the affected side, it's very, you know, very indicative. Yeah. Great, fine. Um, and I think just to, I was just thinking actually, because I've had a case recently that is really atypical. And I think we just need to remember when we're talking about all of this that you have to have a really, you do have to have a really low threshold for torsion. And also, you, you know, you, well, you can get these really atypical histories and you, we're all going to experience missed torsions. Um, I had one that literally presented with three days of gradual pain. Um, went away with antibiotic, came back and had a, a dead testicle. Um, so, yeah, so we say all these typical things of each of them, but things do present weirdly. Um, cool. So, as we've sort of mentioned, yeah, we're going to park torsion. Please check out, I think it's episode two, so please check out that if if you want to listen to that. But always, all of this, we're going to remember that if, if you're concerned about torsion, you're going to explore but we're going to move on to our first bauble, <laughs> which is one that is, let's see if you can guess which one I'm going to go for first, Cynthia, I'm going to mix it up. It, this bauble is large, smooth, and um, it likes to shine in the light. I'm going to go with a hydroseal, I think. Yeah, so we're going to talk about hydroseals next. So what are hydroseals? So a hydrocele is a collection of fluid around the testicle, which is contained within the tunica vaginalis. Um, you can either have a primary or a secondary hydrocele. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's worth remembering that in children, um, it's pretty much always a primary hydrocele, and that's caused by a patent processus vaginalis. Um, whereas a secondary one is more what we say is a reactive hydrocele. So in response to infection, a tumour, or torsion or uh, trauma as well. Uh, so that's often a secondary um, element of the pathology. Mm. Now, they often present as non-tender, non-painful swellings. Oh, you've um, jumped ahead. That was our next question. <laughs> so how do they how do they present? They present as a painless swelling um, of the testicle or the scrotum. Um, and on examination, you can, if it's quite large as well, it's often quite hard to palpate the testicle underneath it because it's surrounding the whole testicle. Um, but you can get above it um, and palpate the cord. And the textbook sign is that it transilluminates um, with mm-hmm. a pen torch or a light source, basically, which basically means that it's clear fluid and mm-hmm. not blood. And how are you going to investigate a possible hydrocele? So generally they are quite easy to spot on an examination if they're large, but mm-hmm. the smaller ones, um, and just to confirm a diagnosis, is an ultrasound testes 
um, which is the di diagnostic imaging of choice. Mm. And how are you going to treat them? So generally it tends to be patient-led as well as clinician-led. So having a hydrocele has no adverse effects um, in terms of health going forward. It tends to be more of a cosmetic issue or a practical issue. So if you've got you know, a man with a very large hydrocele hanging between his legs, you often find that they say that they can't sit properly, they can't get to work, it's very obvious and all those sorts of things, which is very reasonable. Um, so general practice says that we if it's small and it's not causing them any problems and they're not bothered by it do nothing at all yeah um if they are either symptomatic with it where you know very large it's dragging it's causing discomfort um, then we offer surgery um which is generally in the form of two methods so either stop stop <sighs> I could just leave leave you talking for the whole of the episode. Can I just... like you need like a, a banner, like a sign. I do, I do. I need some oh, sort banner. of indication. Banner. Don't I? Oh, like, shut up. Yeah. Oh, I'm not that rude to my guests. Please be quiet. <laughs> Put your hand up when you want me to stop talking. Okay. Um, well, so what we were just getting onto is the surgical options for repair. So there are two, generally two different types. Um, do people know what those types are? Go on, tell us. So the two procedures are a Lord's procedure or a uh, Jabalais procedure. Um, not really any benefit or risk between the two of them. They're both very good. And it essentially just means that you're everting or plicating uh, the tunica vaginalis uh, to to get rid of the hydrocele but also try and stop it from recurring again. Yeah. Um, I just find it's it's probably just patient, uh, sorry, surgeon preference, isn't it? I've just yeah, it had... tends to be what that, that the particular surgeon is more, more comfortable with doing, and that's what I mean. It's not really any preference yeah. in terms of technique or anything. They both work just as well. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Cool. So that's our first bauble done. Okay, so going on to our next bauble, this one I only bought recently and it's pretty large and can be red, reddish in colour and a little bit painful. I don't know how bauble's painful, but we're going with that. <laughs> what do you think it is? I think I can put money on that's probably epididymal Yay, it is. <laughs> and that's our next, like, pretty major uh, differential for an acute uh, presentation of um, scrotal pain. So what is epididymal arthritis? So... Epididymal orchitis is um, a clinical presentation, um, involves pain, swelling of the testicle and the epididymis um, with some associated symptoms which may or may not be present, um, which can include erythema of the overlying skin, infective lower urinary tract symptoms such as dysuria frequency um, and also systemic signs of infection such as fever. 
as well. So essentially it's inflammation of the epididymis and all the testicle. Um, what age group do we generally see this in? So although it can affect anyone, you tend to see it in two um, peaks, so either 15 to 30 year olds roughly, um, and I'm sure we'll go on to talk about organisms in a bit, um, or over 60 year olds. Okay, so what are the different causes of a epididymoocitis? So I think the easiest way to talk about this is probably to split it up into the age groups. Yeah. So we talk about the younger men. Um, so the under 35s is always uh, the age cutoff is given to us. So these are often caused by either STI-related organisms, or STIs, basically, um, or uh, some UTI-type organisms as well. Um, there's also a link to some rarer ones, such as uh, mumps, um, and can also be post-viral in the very young pre-pubertal patients as well. So the most common in this age group is often gonorrhea and then chlamydia, which can be present at the same time as well. Uh, so it's often important to ask this in the history as well. Then for the over 35s, or generally it tends to be the older boys, um, it tends to be the... UTI. Did you just say the older boys? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I meant the old boys, meaning the old men. <laughs> okay. I wondered whether that was what you meant. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so the over 35, so the older men, it tends to be the same as UTI pathogens, so E. coli, Klebsiella, Proteus, Pseudomonas, um, because it's often linked to bladder outlet obstruction. Mm -hmm. um, so essentially, if you're not emptying your bladder properly, you're more prone to getting infections such as UTIs and epididymitis or epididymocritis is a form of UTI. Mm -hmm. Perfect. Um, perfect. Well done, Cynthia. <laughs> Good Thank answer. You. <laughs> um, so what are the um what are some risk factors you can think of um for epididymocritis? So we can split this into enteric and non-enteric. So the enteric ones can be associated with um, things that we do to patients, so catheterizing them, recent instrumentation, so if they've had recent surgery, um, and then also things like bladder outlet obstruction, which we've just talked about. And also if the patient's got an immunocompromised state, um, it puts you at risk of any infection in general. Um, and then the non-enteric risk factors um, obviously includes multiple sexual partners, unprotected intercourse um, and there's a slight increase in uh, men who have sex with men. I heard, I don't know if you, this is a, a little plug for a podcast that they don't know I'm plugging them, <laughs> but, but um, the Urology Docs is a pretty good urology podcast. Have you heard of them, Cynthia? Uh, I think I have, I've seen them on Twitter. Yeah, they well, they're, they're pretty good. Um, I'd recommend to anyone who's interested in neurology, but they have a bit of a giggle about um, whether you ever ask anyone if they have um, anal intercourse. I don't know if, if you ever asked anyone that, Cynthia. Um, I don't think so. I think the most I ask is whether they've had unprotected intercourse. So I don't specify what type, <laughs> which 
it's a bit difficult because I guess you should. But yeah, it's it funny because they laughed about it, but I thought actually, you know, it, it is a risk factor, and the reason I mention it is yeah. because they are they are more at risk of, of E. coli infections. But um, I don't think I've ever asked. No, I don't think I ever have. The other difficulty is, is even when you ask someone blatantly, have you had unprotected intercourse recently? They say no, even when they have anyway, because they're a bit embarrassed. So you wonder if they would admit to having men on men sex. I actually had a patient the other day who said, um, I said, are you sexually active? And he went, mm, very. <laughs> <laughs> Good I feel like he might have asked quite honestly if I'd asked. But yeah, fair enough. <laughs> Anyway, um, so there we go. Yeah, so some risk factors there. So just to hammer that point home a little bit, can we name some main things that in the presentation that would help us distinguish between torsion and epididymarchitis? Because these are the main two that we need to distinguish between, aren't they? Yeah, so like you said, it's the ones that you, this is the differential diagnosis you look for in an acute scrotum. Um, so just to reiterate, history and examination, very important in an acute testicle or acute scrotum. So in the history, you often find that the pain is slightly more of a gradual onset um, with associated swelling. Uh, and like we said, it can have some dysuria frequency associated with it discharge if it's STA, STI related um, and any systemic signs of uh, infection such as fever, feeling generally unwell, uh, nausea, rigors. And then just going on to the examination, um, it's often very, very tender and I appreciate a torsion is very tender, but um, it will be, you know, if especially if it's just the epididymis, it'll be very, very swollen, a bit hard and um, possibly hot to touch and have some overlying erythema as well. Mm. But the hydrocele bauble, um, this situation <laughs> you can get a reactive hydrocele as well. Mm. Um, but it's worth bearing in mind if patients present very late, um, they can end up forming an abscess, which obviously feels very different uh, to a testicular torsion or just an early epididymalchitis. Yeah. Epididymalchitis can be incredibly painful, can't it? Like... You know, I've seen some people that you think, oh, you must have a torsion <laughs> because it's so, they're in so yeah. much discomfort. But, of course. Yeah. But they're just, you know, they'll be jumping off the table yeah. when you're examining them because everything's just so swollen and inflamed. Yeah, yeah. Um, so how do we investigate these patients? I feel uh, like, do you so want me to take this one? <laughs> I feel like a bit of a cop-out this time because I'm like, I should probably be able to answer these questions. Okay, yeah, so, so as we said, um, explore if in doubt. We're going to do probably, we want to do a urine dip, don't we? That might indicate some obvious infection. Send an MSU. Um, if there is any um, pus or high-risk patients for STIs, then you take a urethral swab and maybe a first past urine for um, chlamydia and gonorrhea. Um, and then just as an aside, if you do think there's any sort of, um, mump, uh, history of mumps or, um, then you do a viral PCR for, for that. I was looking at the guidelines and there's not really any clear guidelines on the imaging, but generally we, most people will do an ultrasound scan, 
um, to aid diagnosis. We sort of say it is a clinical diagnosis, but we do it to aid it. And then can anyone tell me how my, how many, well, how much percent of tumours, testicular tumours, present as acute testicular pain? Cynthia, do you want to tell us what that percentage is? Uh, so it's about 10%. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so it may pick up heterogeneity or um, abscesses or ischemia or hydrocele's and other things as well. So um, how are we going to manage these patients? You can take this one, Cindy. So when it comes to management, again, it depends what you think or what is more likely to be the causative organism. So most hospital guidelines will use this. Oh, we're losing Synthu's connection. I can't think why, because neither of us have moved. But I will take this question. <laughs> so <laughs> we, as we were saying, it depends what we think is the cause of um, the urine infection, whether we think it's enteric or um, non-enteric. And that will determine what antibiotics we're going to give. So if patients are... Um, young, high risk of um, sexually transmitted infections, then we're going to treat them with something like doxycycline and potentially give them a shot of IV kefetriaxone as well um, to cover them for gonorrhea. If patients are well, systemically well, whether they've got um, STI or enteric organisms, they can generally be discharged um, with the advice for rest, elevation, um, their antibiotics, analgesia, particularly um, NSAIDs, and if they've got an STI, they should obviously avoid sex until their STI is treated. If patients are systemically unwell, then they're going to need inpatient management. Um, I came across a paper, I don't know, have you ever heard of this sort of um, determining patients' risks in thing? I don't think I've come across the paper, but actually having a read of it, um, the things that are mentioned are things that are clinically done in practice. Yeah. So it's like touring, actually. Yeah, yeah. So it sort of mentions papers caught by Hongo et al. And um, it sort of highlights the patients that are at risk of becoming systemic unwell. It's generally those above 65, those um, with diabetes, raised CRP or urea and who are febrile, so a temperature above 38. So it's just important to look out for those features and either admit them or like really good safety netting for those for those patients. Um, generally, you're going to give antibiotics for about 10 to 14 days. Um, and those that are more at risk of um, enteric organisms will have um, probably something like ciprofloxacin for their antibiotics instead. Um, systemically unwell, I generally uh, presume you agree, Cynthia, give um, IV gentamicin as well. And then uh, when do you think we might, so we talked a bit about ultrasound picking up abscesses, so when might we consider surgical intervention for abscesses? That was a question to you, Cynthia. <laughs> so 
like with any abscesses, um, the bigger they are, they tend to not resolve on their own without drainage. So as a rule of thumb, any testicular abscess or scrotal abscess that's over five millimetres, uh, we would try and drain. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, cool. And last point we just want to make was about follow-up. So just to point out, not most of them probably don't, need follow-up but maybe occasionally um they might require repeat imaging in a particularly severe case and then you you also want to follow up on the potential cause of them getting a um an epididymarchitis so have they got bladder outflow obstruction in younger patients have they got strictures or have they got stones um so that would be the reason why you'd follow these patients up more than for their epididymarchitis um on its own so our final bauble-ish, I think. Final main bauble. The only thing I can think of, this is like an acorn-like bauble that's a bit, you know, bobbly, um, yeah, uneven. A awkward bauble. An awkward bauble. An awkward that's not as smooth as the rest. Exactly. What bauble are we talking about now? <laughs> So the this bauble is varicocele. It is, yes, absolutely. So what is a varicocele? A varicocele is a collection of dilated veins within the scrotum. So it's from the pampiniform plexus and the spermatic cord, uh, which forms uh, the swelling. <laughs> Perfect. And... What forms the pampiniform plexus, specifically veins? A little bit of anatomy for you. So this is formed by the internal spermatic and the gonadal veins, uh, which form a plexus around the spermatic cord. Perfect. And what are the common causes of a varicocele? So most commonly, it's caused by either incompetent or constant valves in the testicular veins, uh, which results in improper blood drainage. Uh, really, it can also be caused by the tumor vein dilatation. That broke up a little bit, so I'm just going to fill in the gaps. <laughs> that was a tumor in the spermatic vein causing obstruction. So who is at risk of getting a varicocele? And don't just say men, because that's a cop-out answer. <laughs> it's the easy answer. <laughs> <True>. <laughs> um, so technically, any man of any age is at risk of getting a varicocele. So the general risk is about 15%. Um, essentially, 20 to 40% of men who are being investigated for infertility are found to have a varicocele, uh, which we'll go into a little bit more detail about in a bit. Um, and the peak uh, incident is not a 15 and 25 years old. Perfect. And um, so next question, how do they generally present? So 90% of them occur on the left side. So why why is this? Why do they occur on the left? So like with most of the things, it relates to the anatomy. So there's a slight variation in the testicular artery anatomy. 
uh, on the left side, which drains into the left renal vein, whereas the right side drains into the IVC. Perfect, yeah. Um, which means that the left testicular vein can get compressed between the SMA and the aorta. Um, and there's also less valves in the left renal vein, uh, left testicular vein as well. Yeah, I think it, and it also there's that, it's about the angulation of the vein, I think, isn't it? How it, um, you've got that 90 yeah. degrees insertion of the vein and then slightly, slightly less more than acute that. angle. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, so left side much more common um and in terms of then how patients describe them um they often just so they're not often painful but they can can be but they're described as sort of heavy dragging sensation um, they might get a swelling and generally it's affected by position so um <laughs> Cynthia what's maybe a better way I could have described <laughs> this bauble <laughs> oh I don't even know like a, a bag, bag of worms. worms. Like a bag of a ba- worms. <laughs> the bauble is a bag of worms. Who would want a bauble that's a bag of worms? Hey? Um, <laughs> okay, um, so moving on. So what is what is the link with infertility then? Why why do patients get infertility who have various casillas? Or why why does there seem to be an association? Um so there's generally an association with impaired spermatic parameters, so things like sperm count and definitely sperm motility is de- decreased um, in about 90% of the patients who have a varicocele. Yeah. Um, it's, it's obviously more so the bigger the varicocele as well. Yeah. And I think it's a lot to do with the um, sort of the temperature regulation within the within the testicles. So the varicocele, the presence of the varicocele affects that, and then that affects spermatic production and quality. Um, so how do we grade varicoceles? So we tend to use the Hudson classification. So this is going from zero to three. So essentially subclinical, small, moderate, and large. So a grade zero, which is sub- subclinical, is only detected on doctor ultrasound. So it's not affecting the patient and the patient's not really aware of it. Uh, grade one, small one, uh, it's only palpable on a Valsalva maneuver and isn't visible on examination. Then grade two, which is a moderate varicocele. So it's palpable without a valsalva maneuver, but only on standing during examination. And then the highest grade, grade three, is a large varicocele, which is palpable and visible through the scrotal skin without any maneuvers or position. Perfect. I keep saying perfect. It always, I feel like I'm being really patronising. <laughs> I'm glad that you approved the answer. Just so you were all aware, Cynthia was my registrar last year. <laughs> She's it's definitely, fine. definitely more senior to me. <laughs> At least I get the reassurance that I'm not stupid. Yeah, true, true. Um, okay, so when do we when do we fix hydrocels? Yeah, so. We don't always have to fix them, like kind of like hydrocele's. If they're not bothering the patient and they're not causing problems, you can just leave them be. Um, in situations where we would, infertility, obviously we've spoken about a lot, is probably a very good indication, probably the strongest indication to fix a hydrocele, uh, a varicocele, sorry, um, 
to try and improve the fertility. So the American Society on Reproductive Medicine um, essentially suggests uh, fixing a seal if uh, all of these conditions are met. So essentially, if it's palpable on physical examination, so a grade one to three, um, if the patient and the couple are known to have infertility, um, and if the female partner has normal fertility or potentially treatable cause of fertility, but the male partner has an abnormal semen uh, or abnormal semen parameters or abnormal results from the sperm function as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and just as size, you can fix it. We mentioned they don't normally present with pain, but if if there is a varicocele and the patient's presenting with chronic testicular pain, it could be, um, you know, you could approach fixing it um, as an option. Um, okay, so what are the different management options? Um, so these can be broken up into three categories, probably. So the conservative approach is obviously the ones that are very small, subclinical, or uh, not bothering the patient. So you can often um, give them reassurance, uh, advise on analgesia, simple analgesia, and supportive underwear, which can help. Um, you often find these patients say that it's worse towards the end of the day, uh, just because of gravity. Um and as a side note, it's always really important, even if you are conservatively managing the varicocele, if there is a right varicocele uh, that doesn't disappear on lying down, you should investigate it with at least an ultrasound of the abdomen, because this can be a sign of either an abdominal or retroperitoneal mass. Um, then just going back to the management, uh, so this can be done surgically or radiologically. Um, nowadays, we tend to do radiological occlusion. Um, so essentially, they, the interventional radiologists um, put coils into the spermatic veins. Um, again, if either that's management of choice or if they failed surgical ligation in the past, um, and this hope helps to relieve uh, the dilata- dilated veins. Um, we can't do this in patients who have a no contrast allergy, uh, any form of coagulopathy, uh, and renal impairment as well. Um, there's several other, um, apart from the cause, they use several other mechanisms to try and clue the veins, such as balloons and glue, but you don't need to worry too much about that. Um, main risks um, associated with this, so when you're counselling a patient, uh, is misplacement, embolization of the testicle, uh, failure uh, and venous perforation as well uh, but generally it has a good success rate of about 75 to 90 percent um, but 50 25 get a significant recurrence so it's worth making okay. of that um cool and i'll just take the so the last option is the surgical option and there, there are quite a few different techniques essentially you can go sublingual so you sort of move up from closer to the testicles, so you go sublingual, subinguinal, sorry, inguinal, retroperitoneal, or laparoscopic. So if you sort of work your way up the inguinal canal, um, and all of them come with various degrees of 
recurrence or hydrocele um, and they can also mostly be done either conventionally or with microscopic assistance. Um, I'm not sure you'd need to know any more than that um, for the MRCS. So yeah, I think we've covered three baubles. <laughs> Do you think, think that's that, enough? That sounds good. Um, thank you so much for joining me, Cynthia. Yeah, I've had a great time. Your internet connection's been rubbish. Can you upgrade, please? I'm really sorry. <laughs> Um, and <laughs> we'd like to uh, wish you all a very merry Christmas <laughs> and um, yeah hope you have a great festive season and we'll be back oh I will be back anyway in the um, in the new year so um, take care everyone and um, I hope you've enjoyed and speak to you soon bye 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 Oh, well, a dim bone, dim bone, dim, dry bone.